0: Under the Jews, a stumbling block, under the Greeks, foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin.
1: Welcome back. Glad you're here. Hope you're excited to be here. Alexandria's School of Scripture. Who would like to go to this school? Anybody? With all that you've learned about Alexandria, wouldn't it be a wonderful place to get a Bible education? So the time period that many of these things are happening that we've been talking about, it came to exist at a time when... So Alexandria, Egypt... Was the home to philosophy it, it was kind of the seat it was you know eventually eventually Greece took that that role that position. Greece became the, the philosophical center of the world and, um, and we even see that we see that in the Bible um, probably no, probably no country has impacted from a philosophical perspective, the world more than Greece. But this, this, this place in Alexandria, there was a library there. There was a huge library there. Um, And it was considered the, just the, the greatest collection. It was kind of like what we call today, the internet. (laughs) The internet is the greatest collection of knowledge and information you could ever get your, your hands on. And Back in this day, this library in Alexandria, that, that's what that was. It, it was all, all the, 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 in terms of written knowledge, you would find it at this, this place in Alexandria. And so, also in Alexandria, there was this school of the scriptures. And the problem with this place is that it was founded by a man named Philo. It's another good name and Philo was an unsaved philosopher. So how would you like to learn the Bible from an unsaved philosopher? Now, we talked last week, I I mentioned briefly um, Jordan Peterson, and he's the modern-day version of this. He's an unsaved philosopher. Now, he's got a lot of very interesting things to say about the Bible. None of it is biblical, (laughs) And, and he's... He's damaging because he has a brilliant mind, he works hard, he's a prolific writer. He's basically a modern-day Erasmus in, in many ways, except that Erasmus believed the scriptures, Jordan Peterson does not. Erasmus believed the scriptures, Philo did not. And so this man founded this school as, as an unsaved philosopher, and one of his primary beliefs was the Bible is not inspired. Now that opens a whole, a whole host of problems. When, when you're an unsaved philosopher and you don't believe the word of God is the word of God, that it was inspired by God, anytime you look at the scriptures, you're going to come out with, with, a, with a whole host of confusion. You're just going to be confused. Some of the most brilliant minds in the world have sat down to look at the Bible and their analysis in the end is just <laughs> completely confused. They have, no, they have this brilliant mind, but they look at the Bible and they end up confused because the Bible is not an intellectual book. It can stimulate you intellectually. I mean, God is highly intelligent. He has no problem challenging your mental capacity. But if you don't have the writer of this book sealed inside of you, you're going to be confused. You're going to come out teaching things that make absolutely no sense whatsoever. And that's what these men do. They love the Bible. They appreciate the Bible because of its moral teaching, because of, because it's, it's, it's obviously an incredible book. But they don't believe it was written by God. They don't believe it's inspired by God. And when they approach it and they look at it, they believe it's up to you to try and read into the verses and say, you know, what God was trying to say here, or the the, the moral significance of this passage. And they begin just trying to make stuff up. And it's intellectual. And it will cause a world of intellectuals to listen to it and, and feel like they're really getting something. But if you took Philo or Jordan Peterson or any other intellectual and you gave them a passage of the Bible and you said, I want you to teach this passage, and then you took a Bible-believing preacher who had not even, they didn't have half the intellectual ability of those men and gave them the same passage and said, now I want you to preach it, they're going to look very different. Because one is teaching it from the perspective that this is God's word. He has the Holy Spirit sealed inside of him. And the other one is just a philosopher. And he's just going to make stuff up. And it might sound nice, but none of it is true. And he might say it well, but it's still not true. And it's not really going to help you or anybody else, especially in eternity. Imagine get stepping, standing before God in eternity and saying, Well, Philo said that that book wasn't true. <laughs> Depart from me, ye that work iniquity' you're, 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 you're done. He interpreted scripture philosophically and allegorically. that was that's the appro- that is the common approach these men take to the word of God. You can always count on this when it comes to a lost man who has more of a philosophical background versus a, a, a preacher who who is saved and believes the Bible is the word of God. It's going to be two very two very different outcomes. And, and it has nothing to do with intellectual ability. That's not the problem. The problem is, the, the thing is, when, when I sit down to study this book, I'm being guided by the Holy Spirit. I, he's inside of me. And when I sit down to study it, I have his help. I have his understanding. He he, he gives me the wisdom and understanding necessary to try and make sense of this book because I believe what it says. As it says it. Now, a lot of people don't. You just teach about the knowledge of God, and you'll find out a lot of people struggle with, with what the Bible says. But I can make sense of it because I have the Holy Spirit who can help me and who will teach me. Okay, If you don't have the Holy Spirit, it's left up to you. It means what you think it means. Now, imagine this. If, if, if you believe the Bible is to be taught philosophically and allegorically, well, what if everybody came up with their own philosophical and allegorical approach to the Scriptures? Which one is right? Which one is correct? It takes you back to the world of Relativism. There is no truth. It doesn't matter what's true. That's how he sees it. That's how she sees it. That's how he sees it. But we all see it different. So, what? Which one is right? Uh, It's relative. That's not how God does things. God says, "They that worship me must worship me in truth, in spirit." And in truth, it must be that way, or you're just confused. You're just making things up. And so, if you're put, your intent is not to read a passage, and, and I always ask these people so, when God said, Thou shalt not bear false witness, what did he mean by that? What's the moral significance of that? <laughs> Don't be a liar. That's what it means. God said, I hate when you lie. Don't lie. And then if you if you really believe the Bible, you can run cross-references. Turn to Proverbs 6. Then you start running cross-references and you really find out what God thinks about lying. Look at Proverbs 6, verse 16. These things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying face. Tongue and hands that shed innocent blood. Now people say, but God doesn't hate. (laughs) Uh, Have you read the Bible? God said repeatedly there are things that he hates. And and they're all people. It's always directed to a person. He said, Esau have I hated. God said, I hate Esau. (laughs) With his red, furry skin and... (laughs) all the other weird things that go on with Esau. And so when you believe the Bible, you start running passages and you start fi- you start compiling everything that God says about a subject and then you can put it all together from a Bible-believing perspective and you can actually help people by teaching them what the Bible says about this idea, that idea, this subject, that subject. And if you're not willing to do that, you're just going to help propagate confusion. You're going to make up a philosophical, moral teaching. Now, that's the first part. The second part is allegory. When you believe the Bible is, is an allegory, what you're saying is, I don't believe a word of it. Nothing in this book happened. Nothing in this book is true. Now, there's a big problem with that because there, there, is, there is a mountain of archaeological and historical fact that proves numerous events in this Bible absolutely took place just as the Bible said it took place. So if you believe it's an allegory, is the historical information also an allegory? Okay, what about the archaeological dig site where they dug up the city that was found in the Bible? How's a physical city and the earth an allegory? It's not. So... When you believe the Bible is an allegory, that opens that, that kicks the door wide open for you to just make up what you believe. Now, the only time you find an allegory in the Bible is when God says, This is an allegory. And, and that only happened a handful of times. And then when God tells you this is an allegory, or or it's some sort of symbolic speech, like, like a proverb. Or or um, or a parable, then the Lord Himself tells you what it meant. So this is what people do they, they read the they read the parable and they say, man, I, you know, I wonder what that means. You don't have to wonder what it means. In the very next passage, He tells you what it means. So and and the reason people buy into this is because they're they're so hungry for some mystical magical. Unbelievable thing that's beyond anybody's reach. So they just let you make up stories out of the Bible that are completely untrue. And you end up as confused as they are. This is what happens when you have a school of the scripture. That's run by a philosopher. You're not learning the scripture. You're learning philosophy. That's that's the point. Philo is a philosopher. Philosopher. And if you go to Philo's school of the scripture, you're going to learn philosophy that is taken from the scripture, not, not Christian philosophy, not biblical philosophy. There's nothing wrong with philosophy. There's a problem with vain philosophy. And that's what you're going to get at the school of philosophy, the school of scripture put together by Philo, um, Everybody comes into the Bible with certain preconceived ideas. And and those those preconceived ideas can hinder your ability to understand the Bible. Uh, Especially in a place like Uganda, where everybody's a Christian. You go out on the street and you talk to to 100 people, 90 of them are going to tell you they're a Christian of some sort. Now what they mean by that is, I'm a Catholic, I'm a Methodist, I'm a Protestant, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm any number of confused Christian-based, I'm a Jehovah's Witness, I'm a Mormon, we're all Christians, right? That's what they think. That's what they believe. Now because of that, if you, if you have been taught by a Jehovah's Witness to be a Jehovah's Witness and then you get saved and come out of the Jehovah's Witness Kingdom Hall and into a Bible-believing church, you're bringing with you all the confusion they taught you in in, in the Jehovah's Witness Kingdom Hall. And now that has to be cleared up. That has to be dealt with. And, And that person is going to have things they thought were true about the Bible. By the way, this is true of Baptist churches. They have a lot of traditional teaching that gets passed along as though it's Bible truth, and it's not. So then somebody like my pastor comes along And then somebody like me comes along and everybody gets confused because I thought we believed this, but I actually have no biblical foundation for that. And when my beliefs get challenged, I'm faced with a problem. Do I stick with the traditional teaching of my religion or do I change and I believe what the Bible says? And your ability to do that can hinder your ability to to learn and grow in the word of God. You've got to learn to believe Even when it's contrary to the popular opinion, you believe what the book says. Literally, word for word, exactly what it says. That that means you have to read a passage, think about what your understanding of the passage is, then take that and set it aside. And then look at the passage again and say, okay, does what I think about this passage square with what it says? And if what you think doesn't work with what it says, you're wrong. You say, yeah, but my church teaches that. Well, guess who else is wrong? Your church. You believe what the Bible says. You don't believe what, man have, what men have passed on to you. If I stand here and I teach you something that I am certain with all my heart is completely true. And then you come to me later and say, brother, did you see this verse over here that, that, Completely destroys what you just said. If I get mad and tell you to sit down and shut up, <laughs> guess who's out of line? Guess who's wrong? Guess who's going to have to answer to God? Me. And my heart is, I, 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 take, I take the Bible unbelievably literally. That, that is God's intention. Jesus did that, Paul did that, Peter did that, James did that, John did that. Every single one of them quoted the Old Testament and they never once said, you know, well, what this really means is. No, when they quoted it, they believed the words that were quoted. They took it literally. They didn't try to formulate some philosophical idea around what was said. They believed the words that were written. Now, I'm just telling you, if you do that, It's going to get you in trouble with your Baptist brethren because they don't believe what is written in this book. They mostly believe it. They intend to believe it. But then when you confront their preconceived ideas that were given to them from traditional Baptist teaching with the Word of God, they have a crisis and they think that you're the heretic. But if you want to know the Bible, you need to believe what it says. If you don't believe what it says, Guess what you don't know? You know what you've been told by people. You don't know what the book says. You understand the difference. Now, believing what you've been told might make the denomination happy, but it may not make God happy. And I I prefer to make God happy. Now, that doesn't mean you go back to the denomination and cause problems. You're not here to tear things down. The word of God builds things up. It builds people up. So if if you come across a teaching and it has you it has you fighting with your brethren and tearing them down, uh, you've got a problem. It's either your attitude or your or your or your doctrine, one of the two is wrong. And you need to get it straightened out. As brash as I am, as hard-headed as I am, and as different as I am in my beliefs in the scriptures, if I can get along with churches, you can get along with churches. None of you are as obstinate as I am. And I don't mean to be that way, but I believe this book. And I don't care what you think. I don't want you to be mad at me. I don't want there to be problems, but I believe this book, when you say something crazy that has nothing to do with the passage we just said, I have a problem with that. Now, I'm not going to come pick a fight with you. I'm not going to cause problems for you, but when it's my turn to teach, I'm going to teach what the passage says. I'm not going to repeat your traditional teaching. I have no, no, no patience for that whatsoever. Now, the reason I can do that and the reason that, that I don't have some of these hindrances that some of our brethren have is I didn't grow up in church. I don't have a traditional Baptist background. I got saved when I was 29 years old and then I fell in love with the Bible and I began, the first year I was saved, I read almost 100 books about the Bible, studying, trying to learn, trying to go grow, trying to catch up for 29 years of a complete waste of life. And then I started finding out that I'm reading a book, and what he's saying doesn't match what, like you said this was the verse, but what you wrote over here has nothing to do with what's over here. And I began noticing problems, and then, praise the Lord, I came across, actually through his father, his father's father, I happened to be passing through Virginia Beach one year. And I just stopped at a church for two weeks. And the pastor of that church is his grandfather, and he gave me a book and a CD by a man named James Knox. And that completely ruined my ability to be a traditional Baptist. (laughs) And I'm okay with that. Because I want to believe the word of God. I, I don't want to be a good old boy. Now, if you want to be a lackey and you want to be a good old boy, there's plenty of opportunity out there for that, and there are benefits to that. But I want to stand before God, and I want him to say, Man, you... You believed my Bible. You believed my words. And that means what it says is what it means. You don't look for some some other mystical teaching outside of what it says. And you don't say, well, as Baptists, we believe this. I don't care what Baptists believe. What does it say? And that's what I'm going to do. And that's what I'm going to encourage you to do. And if you don't like that, I understand. I'll pray for you and we'll, we'll still be friends. <laughs> I love you. I mean the, the best for you. And, and I, I get it. It's not for everybody. That's okay. So our mentality should be one that tries to let the Bible change our preconceived ideas. Okay? You got to take, take the scripture, the passage you're looking at, And you got to take your own ideas as well as teachings you have been delivered. Whatever you have learned from Pastor Paul, Pastor Keith, whoever else has had an influence on you and taught you, your, your father, your mother, your dad, your sister, your cousin, whoever. And you've got to compare the two. Do they line up? And if they don't, this one is right. Every single time. It doesn't matter how much the person you love tells you something different. This is right. These ideas are wrong. The word of God is always right. Now, if you can't square something with what you believe and you're struggling to get an answer to it, it'd be best to set it aside for a while and come back to it later. You don't have to have an immediate answer to everything right here, right now. The Christian life is a life of service and study. You learn and you grow along the way. So if you can't reconcile something immediately, set it aside. Go to something you can reconcile. The Lord will help you with it eventually. It'll come around. Now, men like Philo believe the Bible is useful for its moral excellence, but it should not be taken literally. Now, I'm telling you, Baptist churches, they're not Philo, but they do something very similar. We have a traditional teaching. We're Baptist. And we're Baptist because we believe the Bible. Really? If I sat down and started asking some questions and then showing you what the Bible says, you'd be looking at Baptists like, wait a minute, I thought we believed the Bible. Now again, if you're going to find the truth today, it's going to be in a Baptist church. I, don't, I, I, I can say this. I've been all over the world. I've been to numerous different I've studied numerous religions, numerous denominations, numerous churches, numerous ideas, numerous philosophies. The only place in the entire world I have found someone willing to at least remotely teach the truth is in, is in a King James Bible-believing Baptist church. I, I don't think you will find it in any large measure anywhere else. Okay? That doesn't mean those churches are not without problems. And you should not be there to adopt the problems. You should be there to learn the truth. And if that means being slightly contrary somewhere, again, not to cause problems. Having a difference in belief, if it it causes you to fight with your own brethren, that is a problem. There is something wrong there. Either you're in the wrong group, or you are the problem, or the doctrine is the problem. You need to figure out which one it is. Now, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, you go to a Methodist church, you're not going to be happy. (laughs) Because they don't have, they could care less what the Bible says. They're ordaining women and homosexual preachers now. There there is a Methodist church in America who had transgender people come in and read books to their children. Now, could you imagine being a fundamental King James Bible-believing Christian sitting in that church? They'd have a heart attack. So you need to leave that church. You don't say, I'm staying here and I'm going to fix this place. No, that's not up to you. There's an assembly of believers there and they have decided what they believe. You don't get to stay there and cause problems. If the assembly has has decided the direction they're going and you're not going that direction, you need to go somewhere and join people who are going that direction. You don't get to cause problems in different places and you don't get to try and justify your causing problems in different places, especially not in a Bible-believing church. So if you can't have a different belief and a difference of opinion and get along in a church, you are the problem. You have a bad attitude. And you don't want to have a bad attitude. That won't be good. That same passage we read in Proverbs... Are you still in Proverbs 6? Look at at verse 18. And heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief. But verse 19... A false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. You don't want to be that person, even if you think you're right. Now, a heretic. Does anybody know what a biblical biblical definition of a heretic is? That's not what a heretic is. Now, that's the common thought, is that it's someone who's teaching false doctrine. It's someone who's teaching contrary to an assembly of believers. So if you go join a church and they teach contrary to what you believe, if you're right, but you try and force your beliefs on that assembly there, you're the heretic. You don't stay there. You don't cause problems there. The word of God, it's a sword that cuts people to the dividing asunder because it deals with their heart. It is not a club to be used to beat people in the head. There's a big difference. And so if you show up to a church and they don't believe what you believe, but you're just determined you're going to make them believe what you believe, you're the heretic. You should leave. Find a church that believes what you believe. And if there's just no church in existence that believes what you believe, then start one. Otherwise, leave people alone. Go preach the gospel. Why would there be fighting in churches when there are billions of people who are going to die and go to hell? So your beliefs should not be, they should divide you from unbelievers. They should not divide you from your brethren. When the Bible is viewed allegorically, much room is available for the individual's imagination to determine what they believe is being said. Now, could you imagine the trouble that that would get us into? What if everybody in our church imagined what the Bible said? And they all got a chance to teach what they think, what their imagination says about the Bible? Could you imagine? I mean, would you believe the confusion that would come out of that? People who have been sitting in churches for 15, 20 years, sometimes you ask them a a basic Bible question and they have no clue. It's like. Have you, You've been here for like 15 years, and you don't know that? I don't know that. <laughs> that's just how it is. Rather than believing what God said, a philosophical or psychological spin is put on the words. And here I go into men who do this today, Jordan Peterson being an example. Um, he, he's in the public a lot, and that's why I keep bringing his name up. Um, there, there are videos of him breaking down crying on YouTube, talking to someone who's interviewing him, and he's saying that he's struggling with the reality that he might believe in Jesus Christ. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty incredible to see. Now, he's not saved. I hope he gets saved. And it seems that God is really dealing with his heart, and he's this close. But he's got a lot to, over, he's got a lot to overcome because this is him. Philosophy and allegory. But somehow in the midst of all that, he came across Jesus Christ in the Bible and he literally is breaking down saying, I can't believe that I believe that or that I might believe that. Now, until he gets a hold of that, this is who he is and he's dangerous. So it still exists today. A big part of what Calvinism is. Calvinism is is philosophy with Jesus' name on it. So Calvinism is fatalism. And fatalism, tell me if this sounds familiar, if you have any understanding of Calvinism. Fatalism teaches that everything in the world is predetermined by Mother Nature. And so you have no control over what happens Mother Nature decided ahead of time for you that you were going to rob a store, kill somebody, harm somebody, steal something. Those were, those, you didn't do those things. That was predetermined. So then what John, well, John Calvin didn't do it. John Calvin stole the doctrine from Roman Catholic priests like Jerome and, and uh, Augustine, guys like that. He, uh, John Calvin was a Roman Catholic priest. He learned this doctrine from those men. He took it and made his own form of it, and it came later to be known as Calvinism. And so what John Calvin teaches is that God predetermined everything that's going to happen. So it's not Mother Nature that predetermined everything that's going to happen. God predetermined everything that's going to happen. So somewhere in the world, that woman that got raped, God did that. God predetermined that was going to happen. See, since God knows everything and God's in full control of everything, then the man who raped someone, God did that. That's Calvinism. And so John Calvin took his teaching, and he broke away from the Roman Catholic Church, and he moved to Geneva, Switzerland, and he had started basically his own mini-papal state. He became his own pope. And so now today, the philosophy of fatalism is taught as Calvinism. It's still alive and well today. John Calvin never once gave a testimony of salvation that would be in line with the Bible. He's Philo. And if you disagreed with John Calvin, you know what he would do with you? He would burn you at the stake. He'd put you to death. Just like the Roman Catholic Church that he was trying to get away from. So it's still, still going on today. So rather than believing what God said, they had this, this philosophical and psychological bent. Philo was succeeded by, you've seen this name, Clement of Alexandria. That was his successor, the man that came after him. But worse, the man that came after him was our good friend, Origen. Origin is really the mind that has captivated the hearts of a lot of Baptist churches. Baptist seminaries, Bible schools, again, they, 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 don't, they don't teach the teachings of, of John Bergen. They teach you Origin. they teach you Jerome, and they teach you Westcott and Hort. And they believe these men are brilliant linguistic scholars who, who you should follow in order to learn where the Word of God really is. So, so Bible-believing churches are teaching people to follow Origen, Jerome, and Westcott, and Hort, who will teach you, you can't believe the Bible, and you need the Greek and the Hebrew. Sound familiar? So then you take many of our brethren, people we know, people you know, <laughs> people who have been here, who will come here and talk to you and teach you, and, and people who have done incredible things for God, who will then come stand in the pulpit and say, in the Greek, you're influenced by these people. Now, every one of them, every single one of them, ask them, did you go to a Bible college or did you go to a Bible institute? There's a huge difference in the outcome of the product. If you went to a Bible college, a university, a seminary, anything of that sort... This is what you were taught. If you went to a Bible Institute, there's a good chance you were taught to follow John Bergen. You were taught that this is the word of God and you should believe it and you should not be telling people you need the Greek and Hebrew. Greek and Hebrew that you can't read and you don't have. Now, the only logical outcome to that, all right, let's, let's use a little philosophy. Let's use some logic. If you can't read Greek and Hebrew, and if you could read Greek and Hebrew, you don't have access to the Mesoretic text or the Textus Receptus, which still are not the originals, because the originals don't exist, what does that mean for you as an English-speaking person? Hmm? You don't have God's Word. It doesn't exist for you. It's not there. Now, you're free to believe that. You're not free to teach that here. That's not the stance of this church. And there is is no way you could be a Bible-believing Christian and study the history of this book and come to that conclusion. It's not possible. You have been influenced by someone, and there he is. That's the man that really started it all. This man took it from... He took it from a a school of philosophy who's just examining the Scriptures from their perspective, and he began editing New Testament manuscripts. And that's where things really began to fall apart. That's where this this ball gets rolling that that led to the 1611 King James Bible, and then for 200-plus years, the King James Bible has complete superiority, and then origin produces children, Westcott and Hort. And they divide the entire Christian world again. So the Christian world, fundamental Christians, Bible-believing Christians, I'm not talking about Protestants and Methodists and people who, they don't even care about the Bible. I'm talking about the groups who believe the Bible at least has some significance and is important. All right? For us, it's our sole authority. What, what else do you have? All right they are split between two people, two groups, Westcott and Hort and Burgen. You're in one of those camps. Burgen proved without a doubt, unequivocally, that the word of God is perfect and pure, and we have it in the King James Bible. Westcott and Hort said with no proof whatsoever, that book is corrupt and we need to fix it. And by the way, we made our own, we made our own Greek manuscript that we would use to fix it. <laughs> Could you imagine that? I think we need to fix this Bible. Okay, well, um, what are you going to use to fix it? You know, I made my own manuscript. <laughs> Wait, what? You made your own manuscript? Yeah, we'll fix this Bible with my manuscript. No, thank you. And that's where we are. That's where the Christian world is even today. It's still divided. Along those lines. So you have Bible-believing Baptist churches who, who move side by side. We cross lines here and there. We fellowship. We sort of work together here and there. But we're not really comfortable with each other because half of them are over here with Westcott and Hort and the other half are over here with John Burgeon. Half will tell you, well, we, the, you know, the Bible is true in the originals. Okay, prove that. Prove to me the Bible is true in the originals. Let me see your original. Well, the originals don't exist. Then why would you make such a stupid statement? You don't have an original. You couldn't compare an original. You couldn't look at an original. How could you say to me the Bible is true in the originals? And the other group says the King James Bible in in English is the perfect word of God. God preserved his word by bringing the, the, I mean, if you just think about it. You had the traditional text, the Byzantine text, scattered all across the world thousands of manuscripts and you only got to read it if you could get access to it. And that's it. Then it began to be, to start being published in small, small versions in different languages around the world that didn't have the complete Bible. They had parts of the new Testament. They had some of them might've had a whole new Testament, but overall they didn't have a complete Bible. All they have is a little bit of the new Testament and they loved it because it came from the traditional text and it was right. Okay. Then as as it progresses, you have the Masorites who end up producing the entire Old Testament in one document, the Masoretic text. Now, the Word of God is not scattered all over the world. You have the Old Testament in one Hebrew document. Then Erasmus comes along and 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 Beza and they end up taking the New Testament and compiling it it into one new document, into one single document, the Textus Receptus. Now you have the entire New Testament in one book. But you still have a Hebrew Old Testament and a Greek New Testament. Now that's better than having nothing and having manuscripts scattered all over the world, but you still got a big problem. See, I'm reading in Hebrews 11 about this roll call of faith, and I don't know who these people are. <laughs> Abraham, I mean, he read about him in, 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 in Romans 4. I read about him in Galatians, but wh- who is Abraham? How could you go back and, and find out who Abraham is? E- you know, Enoch, Abel, Rahab. Who, who are these people? And why is the New Testament talking about them? Well, then you get the King James Bible, where that Masoretic text and that, and that Textus Receptus is put into one English book perfectly and coherently. And now you have the entire word of God in one book. And I can look in Hebrews 11 and say, Rahab, well, I just run the cross reference and go back to the Old Testament. And find out who she is and what she did. And you follow that progression and somehow half our brethren come to the conclusion, no, that's not the perfect word of God. You need the originals. Okay, you go get the originals. I'll stay here with this book and help people. Let me know when you find it. It's so frustrating that people could come to such a ridiculous conclusion. What that means, okay, th- this is what's happening. I talked quite a bit a minute ago about traditional teaching. Somebody told them that. They didn't look into it. They didn't study it out. And the person that told them didn't show them any logical conclusion logical way to arrive to that conclusion. They just said it. And they just believed it. And and I need you to understand that's how the Baptist world works. You better not be that way. I'm not telling you to go fight with the Baptist world. You're all Baptists, as far as I know. But you need to be people who are willing to look into the matter and come to a, a logical, clear conclusion because you studied it out. And so when someone comes along and makes some ridiculous statement about something they know nothing about, you can help educate them in a kind and loving way. So Origen became the father of Alexandrian thought. Now, what did we learn about the Alexandrian mentality? It's incomplete. It disputes with God's people and God's word, and it helps God's people make it to their death. That's Alexandria in your Bible, right? We looked at the Alexandrian mentality last week, and that's what the Bible had to say about Alexandrian thought. And Origen is the father of that thought. He's the one that that, that, that put this together and, and the start of many of our problems and the divisions over, over the lines, of, over, over Bibles, started all the way back with Origen. And half our brethren think Origen is a great guy and, and worth following. The entire world of Christian scholarship, they are in love with Origen. He inspired the direction of Westcott and Hort. And they inspired the majority of the Christian world today not to have faith in the word of God. And that's a shame. Origen received pure manuscripts of God's word. Delivered into his hands was the pure word of God in New Testament form in Greek manuscripts. And he edited them. I'll just make a few changes here and there. God won't mind. Now, I recall God saying something about that. Can anybody, say, can anybody tell me what God said about adding to or taking from His word? Yeah. He said, don't do it. If you take it all the way, He said it multiple times throughout the Bible. If you take it all the way the book of Revelation, He said, there are plagues waiting for you. I don't know when that's going to happen or how that's going to happen, but I don't want any part in it. Could you you imagine being the person, you got to stand before God and you're, I edited your, I edited your, don't worry, Lord, I took care of the Bible for you. (laughs) Yeah, well, I got something for you. (laughs) Plagues. No, thank you. I don't want that position. Origen received pure manuscripts of God's word, but then he took the liberty of editing them to suit his philosophical and religious thought. And we've we already talked about some of these, but I'll just tell you, we've already looked at, at all of these, so I'll tell you what they are. Acts 8, 36 through 38, in Origins documents, verse 37 is missing. Because to them, baptism is a means of salvation. And if you don't have baptism, it, it, you know if, 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 you, if you have Acts eight thirty seven, then that passage is destructive to the idea that that. That baptism is necessary for salvation. It's the most clear verse in the entire Bible on, on baptism, uh, not being a means of salvation. First John uh, chapter one verses six through eight. Verse seven is missing. We've talked about that one quite a bit. Now th- this is what's so significant about these passages. So Acts eight thirty seven. That is the most clear passage in the entire Bible that proves. Baptism is not a means of salvation. 1 John 5, verse 7 is the most clear verse in the entire Bible that proves God is a Trinity. Without 1 John 5, 7, you have no proof that God is a Trinity. You have some suggestions, but where would you go to prove definitively, without a doubt, that that these three are one? There's nowhere else. Now, you see the Trinity all through the Bible, but nowhere does it say it so clearly as, as 1 John 5, uh, verses, verse 7. Uh, Luke 4, verses 1 through 4. Uh, they removed, but but by every word of God, or every, every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. They, they took the liberty to delete that. Now, if I'm editing a, a New Testament document that God said not to edit... And I get to a passage that says, oh, man doesn't live by bread alone, but they need every single word of God. Let me delete that. Because if, if, it's, if, if that book is subject to me, I don't want people to know that. I don't want anybody to find out they need every word of God when I'm sitting here deleting and adding to God's word. That's, that'd be a bit of a problem. So rather than saying, Lord, my God, I am sorry. I repent of this. Let me fix it. He said, I better, I better erase that. <laughs> Maybe God will forgot he put it there and won't get mad at me. So this school of scripture shaped the thinking and the approach uh, uh, to the word of God. It became the foundation of Alexandrian thought. Its mentality was further devo- developed in the 1800s by Westcott and Hort, and has now been passed on to our brethren in subtle forms. This mentality, in its subtlety, mimics the first person we read of in our Bible who questioned God's word. The serpent in Genesis 3. Did God say that? I mean, but is that what he meant? You know, because I believe the Bible allegorically. So, I mean, I, I know that's what it says, but... But do you really think that's what God... Yea, hath God said... I mean, did he really say that? Yeah, he really said that. So sit down and shut up. Either you believe God's word or you're going to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine this world is going to throw at you. And it's unfortunate that even people we love and respect and care about don't believe they have God's word. I mean, that's That's a shame. Now, how can that person help you? What could that person do for you? They don't even know, they have, they don't even know where the Bible is. And uh, we talked about Genesis 3.1. Again, this form takes today by our brethren, the, the, the form this takes today is they read a word in the King James Bible. Then their refusal to believe those words are perfect, they turn to a Greek text, and they try to help God fix his English mistakes. Now, they're not going to describe it that way. That's not how they, they would explain it. They, they will tell you that this Bible is not perfect. And they tell you that because they believe you have to go back to some original somewhere that doesn't exist. And since it doesn't exist, you can't have the perfect word of God. They are going to try to prove to you that you don't have God's word. But then they're going to come to you and say, let me teach you the Bible. Like, Wait a minute. What? Why are you teaching a book you don't believe exists? Like, what, what, what happened to your brain? It's, it's insane. And it's frustrating. And there are missionaries all over the world who do this exact thing. They need to go home, get a job, and stop telling people that they're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. How can they even know I'm faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God? And you don't have it. So far as we know five texts exist that support origin and the modern versions of the Bible well over 5200 exist that support the King James Bible Origin ultimately ended up with five texts and the men who love origin love his text which means they have five documents to support what they believe is the right Bible and it's never the King James Bible but there are 5,250 plus documents that, 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 that are perfectly coherent with the King James Bible. So you make your choice. All right. But we're going to talk about our friend, Dean John Burgeon. And we'll get some of his background and we'll look at some of his um, arguments for the, for the traditional text. And... Um, and then, once we finish up this next section of lessons, we're going to talk more about the about. We're, we're going to start bringing it closer to, to modern day. Not, not too close yet, but closer. We're going to look at the Textus Receptus a little more in depth. We're going to look at Erasmus version. We're going to look at uh, Stephanus version, and we're going to look at um, uh, uh, Beza's versions. We'll kind of you know summarize those and talk about those. And um, then from there, we're going to go into the King James Bible. And then, Lord willing, from there, we're going to talk about the Luganda Bible and the revised version. Because the Luganda Bible, its relationship is with the revised version, which means it came from where? Alexandria. Alexandria. Origen. Jerome. That was the Luganda Bible's start. That's where it started. You would do much better to go back there <laughs> in the 1890s with the first Luganda Bible and use that one. Because what you have today is far removed from what they gave you back then. And even back then, it was corrupt. It came from the, it came from the revised version. But, but here's, the, here's the, the plus side to it. Around 80 to 85% of the revised version... Is the King James Version. That means eighty to eighty-five percent of your old Luganda Bible is in line with the King James Bible. What you have today, <laughs> it's a t- it's a joke. Now you need to keep using it until we can give you something better, but it's 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 a mess. It needs to be fixed, it needs to be corrected. We need we need God to help us. So, all right. Dean Burgeon, Dean John W. Burgeon. Since 1881, the fundamental Christian world has been split concerning the Word of God. The ma- the majority of Christian academia followed after Westcott and Hort. These followed in the line of thought produced by the Alexandrian text. They they, they basically retaught the, the Alexandrian and Egypt mentality. They believe God's word is subject to man. They do not believe they are subject to God's word. That's the ultimate battle. Are you subject to this book or not? That's a problem that a lot of missionaries have. Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes missionaries are people who can't sit in a church. And so they said, well, God's called me to be a missionary, so I'm going to leave and go somewhere where you can't tell me what to do. <laughs> And so they go across the world and they disobey the Bible that they don't believe on the mission field. That's why when you see a Mazungu missionary coming around, you've got to be careful. You need to verify what they believe. I guarantee you with the teaching that Brother Keith has, has given you here, you know more Bible than probably a major portion of Christians sitting in Bible-believing churches in America and maybe even a good portion of people who claim to be missionaries. So you should not assume that because somebody's a missionary, they can benefit you in some way. You might need to teach them some things pertaining to the Word of God. I'm sure there's a lot of other things you could teach them, but in, in our context, it's the Word of God. The mentality they developed in the name of scholarship has gripped even fundamental Baptist preachers. When you hear a Baptist preacher get in the pulpit and say, in the Greek, this word is... And they say, they say this with the King James Bible in their hands, that man has been influenced by Westcott and Hort, or woman, or... I mean, today, they could be anything. Mm-hmm. Transgender, neutral, neuter creature. Um, everybody thinks they can belong to God. I saw a documentary the other day about Malaysia where a transgender woman was talking about how much she loves Islam, which is her religion. <laughs> okay. I want to see you go to Saudi Arabia dressed like that. <laughs> You know, the home of Islam. is you, you can just make anything up today. So if you don't have a Bible, guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to be swept away by this world. You, you, you have no foundation for your beliefs if you don't have a Bible. It, it's insane. I don't know why you would want to be in that position. Why would you want to put yourself in that position? Now, that position doesn't exist. It's not an option. You, if you're there, you chose to be there because the option to have God's word is absolutely available. It's available in German. It's available in Syria, in Syriac. It's available in English. It's available all over the world. It's available in China. There's a brother in China who he's, he's from Colorado. He moved to China to be a missionary. It's hard to stay in China as a missionary and, and accomplish anything because it's a communist country, which hates the word of God. That goes hand in hand. Communism and socialism always hates God's word. It will be banished as soon as it takes over in any country. And so he gets there, and he wants to stay there, and, and so one way he found to stay there is to join the university and learn to speak Chinese and learn Chinese history by getting a bachelor's de- degree in the university. So he got, he got a visa. He was allowed to stay there and, and be there, and, and um, he did so well that his, his college professor said, would you mind staying and getting your master's? <laughs> Absolutely. So he's been there for four years at this point, got his master's degree. To get a master's is another is about another three years. So now he gets another visa to stay three more years. And while he's studying in the university, he's also starting a church. Now he finishes his master's and they said, well, you did really good at that. Would you also like to stay and get your doctorate? Absolutely. That takes another two to four years depending on the doctorate. And now in order to receive a doctorate, you have to write a thesis statement. Now, somewhere through the course of this time, he found an old copy of a Chinese Bible that came from the Textus Receptus and the Masoretic Text. And he began to reprint that Bible and began to study the history of that Bible. And so he wrote his thesis statement on how China came to have the perfect word of God in their country. (laughs) And now it's a published document in China that anybody who wants to read it can look it up and read how China came to have the perfect word of God in their own own language. He checked it against the King James Bible. It says what this book says. Now, so here's where you're going to have a problem. Some of our brethren who are King James only, are so King James only, they don't think anybody else can have God's word. And they argue with that man. They say, that is not the perfect word of God. And so when you ask them, well, how much Chinese do you read? I don't read Chinese. So you have no idea what that book says. You don't have a clue about that book. But you're going to argue with the man who can read it, who has studied it, and tell him that it's not not a good, accurate copy of God's Word? Well, no, only the King James Bible. Okay, go back in your little hole and shut up. And then on the other side, you have, well, that's not the original. So you can't have God's Word. So what I would like to see is both of you disappear and be quiet. And people who want to have God's word and believe it exists because God said it would exist, I will preserve my word. It's here. It's available. You speak English? Yes, you do. You didn't know that that England being a global dominating power would cause you to be able to read the perfect word of God. So you have it. He has it. Germany has it. Where did did Luther translate his Bible from? Anybody? You should know these things. And? The what? From the Textus Receptus and the Masoretic Text. That's where his Bible came from. Where did this book come from? The Textus Receptus and the Masoretic Text. So if you could read German, you know what you would be reading? This. Uh, And they say all this stuff about the Greek. They've been influenced by Westcott and Hort, and they don't realize they are promoting disbelief in the word of God. But that is evidence of of the devil's subtlety. They believe they are teaching you God's word, but in fact, they are teaching you that God's word is subject to your ability to look up English words in a Greek dictionary. They're putting a barrier between you and God's word. How can that person teach anybody about, about God? They don't have God's word. They don't know that they have God's word. It's the most insane thing that you can imagine. <clears throat> if you find there a definition you believe is better suited, you should be concerned about any man who will stand in a pulpit with a perfect English Bible who then directs you away from that perfect Bible to some language he does not know and you do not know. These men, as genuine and sincere as they may be, have been influenced by Origen and Westcott and Hort. They have been taught to question God's word. The follow-up to that, they will now go and and teach the generations after them that that a mark of godliness is to make references to the Greek. That's exactly what Origen did. That's what Westcott and Hort did. And so now you have Baptist missionaries, Baptist preachers, Bible school teachers, college universities, Bible, Bible school universities, telling people, you don't have God's word, you got to go to the Greek. And in fact, if you'll go to the Greek, it shows how intelligent you are, how intellectual you are. And that's a damning idea that we should wholeheartedly reject. The Greek does not exist. There is no such monster. Also note, the men who so commonly refer to the Greek never refer to the Hebrew. They are infatuated with the Greek. Many of these men are good men, they mean well, but they do not realize they have been influenced by Westcott and Hort. Now, John Dean Burgeon, so that's leading up to this man. That, that's the, con, that's the, the the context into which we introduce John Burgeon. So John Burgeon is seeing this. Westcott and Hort is teaching this. They're pushing this. There are other men. Uh, Tischendorf was there at this time. You've seen his name. Uh, there, there are other men that were around at that same time. And they're teaching this same idea. we got to fix that King James Bible. It's, it's full of problems. Oh, by the way, I found this really neat, nice new manuscript. We can use my manuscript. Can you, could you understand the motivation behind that? we got to fix the King James Bible. Okay, well, let's get the Texas Receptus. No, 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 I have my own manuscript that we can use. We don't need that Texas Receptus. We don't need the Masoretic Text. We don't need any of those other versions you use to help translate it. You don't need the, Latin, the old Latin Vulgate. You don't need any of that. I've got this, this new text that I found in a trash can in a monastery, let's use that to translate the Bible. No, thank you. So, so Dean Burgeon sees all this going on. And then he begins looking into the matter. And man, he just, he becomes a monster for them to reckon with. And they refuse to deal with him. They refuse to respond to him. All they did was mock him. The same way the rest of the Baptist world is going to mock you if you tell them you believe this book is, is the perfect word of God. I can't tell you how many preachers I've had say, You really believe that? And I say, You don't? Uh, the problem is not with me. The problem is that I'm standing in front of a man who claims to be a preacher who's supposed to pre- preach from a book he doesn't believe even exists. That's the problem. I know this is the word of God, and so I can stand and I can openly preach it with full confidence. I I don't have a shadow of doubt. And it comes across in my teaching. And so their doubt comes across in their teaching. And I'm not joining that crowd. They can have it. All right, so John Dean Burgeon, the other side of this view, places us in line with men like Dean Burgeon, if Christians today were going to be motivated by scholarship, Dean Bergen is a wonderful example of Christian scholarship. He refused to be neutral. He came to understand the reliability of the Texas Receptus and therefore the King James Bible. Then from there, he began to loudly defend this truth. And he absolutely defended it. If you could get your hands on his books and you've been to go through them, he was meticulous. He was careful. He, he, he was thorough. And he just compiled proof after proof after proof after proof after proof that the Alexandrian line of manuscripts were corrupt, that Westcott and Hort were corrupt, and that the, that the Textus Receptus, the Masoretic Text, and the King James Bible are the Word of God. He proved it unequivocally, and they won't touch it. They won't go near his books. They won't read them. They won't try and respond to them. Because it would be destructive to this little intellectual empire that they've created, and it helps—it helps please their father. You're of your father, the devil. He was a liar from the beginning and abode not in the truth. And I, I have no interest in going in that direction. Burgeon was a fellow of Oriel College at Oxford. All right, so this is a huge deal. I mean, if you, if you attended Oxford or Cambridge in these days, um, they may not have been perfect in their doctrine, but they were Bible believing schools. Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, every one of these schools was started to train preachers. Now, if you showed up to one as a preacher, they'd kick you out the door. These are the Ivy League schools. This is the height of university. Every one of them was started by Bible-leading Christians. It's a Westminster, it's another one. I mean, is there, now, they're to, now they're totally corrupt and, and completely secular. So he was the dean of, he was a fellow of Oriel College. He was also vicar of St. Mary's. Now, St. Mary's, was the University Church? So it's kind of like um, in America. If you if you attend um, a Bible college, uh, throughout the course of the Bible college, they're going to have um, they have chapel services, and um, usually, oftentimes, the Bible school is attached to a church, and the pastor of the church will do the chapel service, or the assistant pastor, or they might bring in preachers to do chapel services. Well, John Burgeon was. He, I mean, that, that was—he was, was the pastor of the church that was attached to the college. He was Gresham Professor of Divinity. How would you like that title? That's that's fancy. Gresham Professor of Divinity. Now, what that means, he teaches the Bible. <laughs> But who wants to pay a lot of money to go learn the Bible when you can learn hermeneutics? Or you can learn from the Gresham Professor of Divinity. What does that mean? It means I teach the Bible. During his last 12 years of service, he was Dean of Chichester. That's where the Dean comes from in his name. It's not actually his name. he was actually a dean now oxford and cambridge universities were 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 split into these all these different divisions and so within these divisions you had you had all these different like minor schools that had a slightly different focus but they were still part of the overall university if that makes sense